Welcome to Green Shoots, hosted by the Arbor Group at UBS. My name is Jack O'Connor. And I'm Mike France. Green Shoots is a podcast that focuses on the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the organizations that are aligned with these objectives. Today, our extra special guest is George Chamberlain, president and co-founder of the Global Seafood Alliance. And wow, Jack, does he have quite the resume. George began his career as a researcher and instructor at Texas A&M University, worked for a couple of big international firms for a decade before founding and managing several shrimp farming companies known as Kona Bay. He also served as a board member and president of the World Aquaculture Society until 1996. In 97, he co-founded the Global Aquaculture Alliance, where he continues to serve as president. Most recently in 2010, he co-founded the Center for Responsible Seafood. As always on the Green Shoots podcast, we're focused on how our guests are working towards achieving the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, of which the Global Seafood Alliance is notably focused on goals number two and number 14, which are zero hunger and life below water. Jack, I've known George for over a year now. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the aquaculture industry and just a really interesting guy. I'm very excited for today's interview. So without further ado, our interview with George Chamberlain. Welcome, George Chamberlain to Green Shoots. Thank you for joining us today. Wow. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. What motivated you to co-find the Global Aquaculture Alliance, which is now the Global Seafood Alliance, and what were you looking to accomplish? Well, I'd have to take you back to around 1996 when aquaculture was cruising along and all of a sudden hit a lot of um, environmental scrutiny. And frankly, there were quite a few exaggerations, particularly around the issue of mangrove destruction. Mangrove, the, the estuarine tree that grows at the boundary between the, the wetlands and the, and the waterfront. And some of those mangroves were being converted into shrimp farms. And that was a big issue of contention. And the uh, environmental community indicated that shrimp farming had destroyed 50% of the world's mangroves and the whole industry should be boycotted and shut down. And quickly became apparent that there was no international aquaculture organization that represented the industry that could tell its side of the story. So we hosted a discussion in Seattle in early 1997. And there was a unanimous uh, decision that we ought to have that kind of organization. And someone sitting right next to me, Dr. Plod Prasap, the director of fisheries of Thailand, stood up and he said, well, this meeting's going to end and and we're going to walk away and nothing's going to get done. So I'm going to make a nomination that George Chamberlain be the chairman of this group and we start an organizing committee. And that's how it began in 1997. It was defensive initially, trying to gather the information. We, we put together mangrove experts from around the world, gave them an opportunity to meet and to write a report. And they indicated that the shrimp farming indu- industry had destroyed less than 5% of the world's mangroves. But then even though that was true, we realized 5% was still too much. And that led us toward proactively how to develop best practices, and that led to certification programs that went beyond mangroves and environmental issues and also included social and food safety and animal welfare. So it all got started back in 97 with concerns about mangroves. That's great. 
So George, can you explain what types of organizations or businesses comprise GSA membership and how they benefit from being members? Well, actually, Jack, it's the it's the whole value chain. It's the whole thing from egg to plate. And and you might wonder, well, why do the why do the retailers and food service companies get involved in this? They're not aquaculture producers, but they're they're trying to protect their brands. And each of them have made sustainability commitments. The, the, the chairman, the board of directors, they have CSR programs and they make these commitments. For example, all of the seafood produced by Walmart is going to be sustainable by the year, sustain, responsibly sourced from sustainable sources by the year, pick a number, say 2025. And then they, they define responsibly sourced as certified for farm-raised species by these groups, and our organization is one of those groups. And so retailers have a huge, powerful role to play because their buying specifications determine the production practices all the way down to the most remote places in the world. That, in fact, is the main driver. But it is, in fact, all of those links in the value chain that are important members of GSA. And George, the just so I understand correctly, the the membership spans from the huge re, the box big box stores, the big retailers, all the way down to the fisheries, to the fishermen, and, and everything in between. Correct. Yes, and let me let me clarify that until this year, our organization was called the Global Aquaculture Alliance. We only dealt with farm raised product. So it, it began with the hatchery that spawns the parents and produces the eggs and, and then the, the farm that receives those um, young juveniles and the feed mills that supply the feed and then the processing plant that processes and freezes the final product. So, but this year, the uh, Global Aquaculture Alliance Board of Directors decided to broaden the mission to include wild-caught seafood so that we could have one single program, comprehensive program for all seafood, and try to reduce the division between farmed and wild because we actually don't think that consumers recognize that as a big division. We think they see it as seafood. And also because some of the inputs of farm-raised product come from the sea. So there's a blurred division anyway. For example, the marine ingredients, fish meal and fish oil are, are wild caught, yet they become part of the feed ingredients for aquaculture feeds. So yes, anyway, it does um, include all the links now, including fishing vessels and ports and processing plants, in addition to the, the aquaculture side, side of it. And I guess uh, just as a quick follow-up to that since you mentioned it, is have you had to expand your operational capacity to take on that? It seems like that world beyond just aquaculture brings in so many different aspects that may not have been part of the original mission. Just curious kind of how that has uh, forced the organization to adapt. Yes. Well, we've had to adapt our standards. For example, there is one aquaculture standard that was broadened to include wild catch, and that's the processing plant standard, because basically that's almost the same. So that was broadened so it could also deal with wild catch. 
Let me make another thing uh, clear is on the fisheries side, one area that we don't think we have to actually delve into is certification of the fisheries themselves, just the vessels and the ports, because the fisheries themselves are already being certified by two or three other groups, and they're they're in place, and we don't feel the need to reinvent that. So that that saves a lot of the manpower of trying to work on fishery certification, which is a, quite a complex area. George, can you give our listeners just kind of a brief overview of the best aquaculture practices and, and some of the oversight and, and due diligence that goes into that certification process? So it all begins with the Standards Oversight Committee. This is a committee that consists of 12 people. It's a balanced group, four academic, four NGO or conservation groups, and four industry people. And they control the whole process of standards development. It's all on them. The, the Global Seafood Alliance really has nothing to do with it and doesn't interfere. And then this Standards Oversight Committee establishes technical committees that are responsible for developing the individual standard. For example, there might be a technical committee on salmon farms and another one on, let's say, hatcheries. And those committees also have a balanced group of members and a chairperson, and they develop the draft standard. They hash it out. They they eventually come up with a consensus draft, and it goes back and forth to the Standards Oversight Committee until everybody's happy with it. And then it goes out for public comment and is out for 60 to 90 days. And we get comments from many different stakeholders. And then that, again, goes back to the technical committee to get incorporated and back up to the Standards Oversight Committee. And it gets eventually approved and released. And then it moves to another stage where auditors, third-party auditors, bear in mind that our organization is a standards developer. So we have all these processes to build the standard, but we never audit in the field. That would be a potential conflict of interest. Instead, we enlist ISO certified uh, certification bodies who are skilled in this area, and we train their auditors about the interpretation of our standards and all the different clauses. And then those third-party auditors actually do the, the inspections. And every standard deals with four main pillars, environmental issues, social issues, food safety, and animal welfare. And, and, and once again, on the aquaculture side, there are standards for the hatchery, the farm, the feed mill, and the processing plant. And on the fishery side, it's the fishery certification, which is already done by uh, other parties, the vessel, the port standard, which we are working on, and the common processing plant standard. And let me mention one one other thing about certification. Because there's been some proliferation of standards by multiple groups, there has been a need 
to establish the credibility or the robustness of a standard to make sure it's internationally accepted. So there are guidelines for food safety. For example, there's the Global Food Safety Initiative that was formed by retailers years ago when there were some food safety incidences and the big retailers all got together and said, any incident is a black eye for all of us. Let's develop guidelines so that we're all using certification standards that have the common clauses. And GFSI was born. And there's another international one on environmental issues called GSSI, Global Sustainable Seafood Initiative. And there's another one on social issues. And I'm sure eventually there'll be another on animal welfare. So all the main most important standards are benchmarked to these international guidelines. So it's another important equivalency kind of a measure between these various certification programs. That's great. It sounds like the the BAP certification process has a high degree of integrity. um, And there have been, as you mentioned, some other certification standards out there that people are sort of questioning the integrity, especially with some of the maybe negative publicity that's been going around the seafood industry as of late. Um, I want to switch gears just a second The and just talk about the future of the industry. Current global population is roughly 7.8 billion people, and, and the UN expects this to level out around 11 billion people by the end of the century. It's another 3 billion mouths to feed, and we presume aquaculture will have to play a big role especially as land becomes scarcer and scarcer. And is the aquaculture industry in a position to scale rapidly to meet the future demand? And are there any innovations that will need to occur along the way? That's a great question, Mike. And you're absolutely right about the the challenges of the population increase and food production. But the the big uh, conundrum is that food production systems already account for about 25% of greenhouse gas emissions. And climate change is on us. There's no question about it. We need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So the idea of scaling what we have and allowing those greenhouse gases to escalate is just not workable. We have to, tr- we have to transform. And I'm not speaking just of aquaculture, but of all food production systems. And there are so many exciting innovations happening. You know, to get down to the very basis of it, the main greenhouse gas emissions from any form of animal husbandry comes from the feed, and more specifically from the feed ingredients. So it all actually goes back to farming. And how was that soybean produced and that wheat and corn? And as you know, there there are ways to farm that can not only reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, they can sequester greenhouse gases. It can turn it from a positive emissions to a negative, and actually removing net removal of of carbon called carbon farming. And so there's, you know, going all the way back to the roots of this aquaculture, we need to work with the farming community. But then 
so many innovations to improve efficiency and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You know, just going to the feed, for example, we have a, an indicator of efficiency called the feed conversion ratio, which is how many pounds of feed it takes to produce a pound of product. And it's typically around two, two pounds of feed to produce a, a pound of product, or maybe 1.7 or 1.8. But in, in the case of shrimp farming, if we take just one example, it's very difficult to feed them accurately because you can never see them in a pond. You never know what your survival is, and they're very patchy in their distribution. It's, it's a, it's a decades-old problem of trying to understand how much feed to put in the pond. But now we have acoustic underwater microphones that are attached to auto feeders that actually dispense just enough feed according to the sound of the, sh of the shrimp's feeding behavior. And that can almost cut the feed conversion ratio in half, down to nearly one. And there's so many, so many innovations. I would say breeding, you know, genetic improvement. And I don't mean uh, genetic modification, but just standard selective breeding is probably by far the biggest driver of improvements because it's like compounding interest. It can improve the performance of a population in terms of growth, survival, reproduction, around 10% every generation, compounding interest. And some, some um, species have a generation cycle of less than a year, for example, shrimp. So that means that these aquaculture species that have only recently come from the wild are already outperforming chicken. Chicken is like the rock star of genetic improvement. It's, it grows four and a half times faster than when breeding started back in the 40s. So aquaculture is a very young industry, but there are many new things. For example, since childhood, I've heard of farming the oceans, but only now do we have true open ocean offshore platforms in, in production a single platform that can yield 20,000 tons per harvest and huge ocean vessels that look like a massive container ship that are being built now that are actually aquaculture vessels that'll be auto-propelled and can avoid storms and, and produce in the open ocean, oceans being 71% of the Earth's surface and only 3% utilized. So I think the dream and the potential of farming the seas is you know, beginning to become a reality. And then, and then if you look at the other end of it, there are farms that are moving totally indoors, inland, and recycling the water year after year, having very little discharge and the ability to produce at high levels using lots of automation and mechanization, and yet still respecting animal welfare of the, of the fish that's being produced. So it's a very exciting field, probably the most rapidly, I think it is the most rapid growing sector of animal production worldwide.
It's really interesting. And, you know, kind of keeping on this topic, but maybe a little bit of a slight difference here. You just discussed the potential that aquaculture has to feed a growing population in a more efficient manner in terms of greenhouse gas emissions specifically. Uh, But there seems to be, you know, pretty intense debate about the pros and cons of the practice when it comes to aquaculture as a food source more specifically. In some circles, you know, there's definitely, I think, still a stigma around eating farm-raised fish. So what are some of these concerns that these circles might have? And are there changes that you think uh, might need to occur on an industry-wide level to address them? Or alternatively, is that perception misguided entirely? Oh, no, there absolutely are lots of areas where there's room for improvement. And there have been lots of missteps along the way. But I should begin by reminding everyone that aquaculture is a very young a young industry, you know, if it's it's followed the same steps as traditional agriculture. It started with a wild organism, farmed in a low density way in a very uncontrolled environment, and over time, those organisms have been domesticated and they put into a into a more controlled environment, and the and the production intensity has increased, but that evolution took thousands of years in the case of agriculture. But in the case of shrimp farming or or any kind of aquaculture, it's just a few decades old. We actually have a picture of the father of shrimp farming. You know, the guy who first closed the life cycle, learned how to spawn, spawn shrimp and raise the larvae through these complex larval stages. Imagine trying to find the picture of the first cattle farmer, chicken farmer, pig farmer. That that was 50,000 years ago. So we're we're witnessing in real time these missteps and problems as this very young industry t- tries to take shape and and makes mistakes, but it's rapidly improving. And I'll mention that the standards, the certification standards are improving along with it. They get revised every 2 or 3 years. And in the case of the of the BAP, best aquaculture practices and best seafood practices, we now have what are called vanguard standards, which are leading edge standards that are bolt-ons to the existing standards. And for example, climate action deals with that issue of greenhouse gases. And raised without antibiotics is another one. Digital lot-based traceability tracing a product all the way to the consumer level with the QR code on the pack so that you can pick up a pack, scan it, and see the provenance, you know, exactly where it came from at each step, the sustainability credentials and the product story, you know, how it was raised. And, you know, lots of other Vanguard standards on, for example, those recirculating aquaculture systems or animal welfare is a totally new area that's um, there's a more and more interest in it. So yes, indeed, Jack, there have been lots of mistakes and there will continue to be mistakes, but I would say the controls and the sophistication, the evolution of the business is really fast. And it's important to remember to look ahead. I think a uh, you know, if, you're, if your community is largely investors, investors by definition are allocating resources for some return in the future. You know, it's all about the future. 
So it's important to look ahead at what are the developments that are in process that are really avoiding these impacts rather than look in the rearview mirror at what might have happened 10 or 20 years ago. Couldn't agree more. And, I, you know, what an interesting parallel to, say, autonomous vehicles that are still in the works and a lot of question marks about uh you know, how those are being governed and operated. And, you know, anytime you have this kind of new emerging technology, stuff happens, right? And I want to actually point out uh, and get your comments on on something that occurred in more locally a few years ago, and that was in 2018, the Washington State Legislature actually banned all net pen farming of non-native fish species in response to the accidental release of 250,000 Atlantic salmon. I'm curious on on if you have any thoughts on how this shifted the practice of aquaculture in the U.S. and beyond, or or is this just really a local state issue? Yes, I think that was super regrettable, and all sorts of controls should be in place to prevent that. And and I have to say that if you go to the website of the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife you will see that they say over and over again, they've never found any impact either on inbreeding or on disease contamination of farmed animals on wild stocks, even to the point of over the years, over over many years, there have been deliberate attempts to introduce Atlantic salmon into that area, and they have all failed. There's never been any indication of a single fish that's reproduce successfully in that area. But nevertheless, escapes are a, are a major sustainability issue. And there are lots of improvements and provisions about how the mooring systems and the net systems have to be inspected and audited by third-party engineers and signed off on and regular maintenance schedules and, and issues with Predators like sea lions are being ad- addressed in, through separate animal welfare methods that use deterrence like um, sound and underwater cameras to, to locate the animals and try to discourage them from tearing nets and so forth. So I would say there's lots of work underway, but yes, that incident has had an impact on the aquaculture industry. And I think we see a sector that is moving more rapidly toward land-based systems. And there's yet another version of um, offshore culture called closed containment or semi-closed containment. Imagine instead of a net that you have an impermeable tank. It can either be made out of uh, essentially plastic, like imagine a tarpaulin, or can be actually floating concrete tank. But the animals are held in an an impenetrable system, and that allows the pumping of water from much deeper, where sea lice and other parasites are not present, and it also allows the collection of any waste released by the animals so that it can be taken ashore and used for biogas production or for fertilizer. So, each of these incidents leads to an incremental improvement in controls. There are learning experiences and regrettable, 
but they do happen and hopefully they result in a in a consequential improvement that's great background um so global seafood alliance uh you know and the podcast is always all about getting back to the sustainable development goals and you know how uh nonprofits are specifically helping to address some of these goals and on the website, when we were kind of looking into the research for the podcast, I noted that uh, you have about seven of them listed and some of these climate action, life below water, responsible consumption and production and zero hunger are pretty obviously aligned with the mission. But I also noted that uh, you also list a couple of other ones that may seem a little bit less obvious to our listeners. So how would the organization be working towards uh, goals such as reduced inequality and gender equality? Yeah, that those are very important. Also, all seventeen are important. It's it's kind of an issue of deciding where to begin on these SDGs. One document that we've looked at is the sustainable financing frameworks that are used by major companies. And Moe, for example, the world's largest salmon farming company, chose just four four of the seventeen SDGs to focus on as part of their of their financing. But absolutely, gender equality and and overall equality are super important. And within GSA, we have a sort of a personal commitment to that. We've, We've taken on a project with a group called SAGE, and we are providing seed money to start scholarships to basically take just two women from developing countries and help give them some education in this field of aquaculture and sort of upping their game so they can be better employed and and find better opportunities. And the founder of SAGE, Julie Kuchipatov, is super passionate about this, and we hope to build on this and get more investment from others and offer more scholarships. But it's just a tiny little a little project that we're offering. The, the much greater impact that we can have is is through our our um, constituency and working with certified producers around the world and encouraging them to be more aware of these topics and also by trying to work with sustainable financing groups uh, like yourselves to 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 try to encourage that these SDGs be recognized. I would I would say that one of the biggest challenges we've we've heard about from the financial community in terms of sustainability is how to monitor the metrics. Who's who's tracking them and how do we know if they're verified? And so one thing that we'd love to work together on is identifying them. For example, what are the social metrics? What are the sustainability metrics or the you know how many kilowatt hours of power were needed to raise this kilogram of salmon or how much how many liters of water or or how much marine ingredients and 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 defining those metrics verifying them and having a basically a database dashboard where one can go to check on the the journey of a given company as it as it improves over time we we would love to try to develop those those metrics so we have a basic framework where we can all be on a level playing field and be transparent about the progress we're making 
And certainly the investment industry is trying to address the verification issues as well. In Europe, there are new rules and regulations coming down the pike that are attempting to tackle greenwashing and how sustainability is measured. So more to come on that topic. Well, George, you've been very generous with your time today. Jack and I want to thank you for joining us. You mentioned several things during our discussion just now that I would love to follow up with you on during a future Green Shoots episode. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been such a pleasure and I welcome the chance to come back and and dive in more. So anyway, let's, let's stay in touch. Well, Mike, I uh, certainly learned a lot from that conversation. You're totally right. George has a totally encyclopedic knowledge about all things aquaculture. And I'm just curious, what were your takeaways from our conversation today? I was really fascinated by where the industry is going. It's crazy to think that aquaculture has only been around for 40 years. It's still in its infancy, and there's so much room for advancement. Jack, what caught my ear was microphones listening for hungry shrimp. What kind of sound does a hungry shrimp make? I gotta listen to that audio recording. Also, the autonomous container vessels that will be farming fish in the middle of the ocean somewhere. I can just picture 30 years in the future, these large refurbished oil tankers that used to crisscross the ocean transporting crude oil, now holding hundreds of thousands of fish. What about you? It's funny that you say that, kind of looking forward to the future of the industry. I really learned a lot about the history of the industry and kind of going back and correcting some of the misconceptions that originally came around, going all the way back to when they did that mangrove study and the practice of aquaculture was obviously far less damaging than they had kind of initially stated. So, you know, I think it has gotten a little bit of a bad rap and having some of those things corrected by somebody who's been involved with the practice for so long was super helpful to me. Also, I'm pretty interested in kind of the whole uh, food chain uh, in terms of how we're building out capacity to feed people. And, you know, the fact that we're going to have another 3 billion mouths to feed by the year 2100 and trying to figure out how we're going to scale to meet that demand while also mitigating the effects by climate change, of which I'll note that he mentioned the practice of animal agriculture accounts for about 25% of carbon emissions. And so this certainly seems like a pretty sustainable way to scale the food production system for people in a way that doesn't necessarily harm the environment, particularly when he was talking about bringing these out of the water to some extent and doing indoor farming, which typically I've always heard as being kind of reserved for leafy greens and microgreens, that type of thing. So certainly I learned a lot today. Yeah. All great points, Jack. And George was very generous with his time. He also wanted to let our listeners know that if people want to follow up with him, if they want to, he had a beautiful set of slides that he wanted to accompany the podcast. We weren't able to to incorporate into the interview. However, he said, feel free to email at george.chamberlain at globalseafood.org, and he could shoot those right on over to you. Well, we look forward to doing more of these podcasts in the future. And until then, we'll say so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, goodbye.